Thank you for joining us for this podcast of the Family Fellowship of Greenville, located in Greenville, Texas. If you'd like more information about our church, please log on to www.familyfellowship.us or email us at info at familyfellowship.us. Now here's lead pastor, Paul Blue. Good morning, everybody. I want to invite you to turn your Bible to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. We'll also be in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 if you want to uh, get a little uh, head start on those. I hope that you enjoyed um, these students from Baptist Bible College this morning. And uh, you'll be given an opportunity to be a blessing to them at the end of the service as well. Um, The year was 1983. I had just gotten moved into my dorm room to begin my... A uh, new phase of life as a college freshman. And I met my new roommate that first night, and that roommate introduced me to the world of professional wrestling at the Sportatorium. Every Saturday night in our dorm room, we watched wrestlers like the great Kabuki, Iceman King Parsons, the missing link. And Bruiser Brody. But after all of those matches, then came the main event. And the main event usually involved two groups of wrestlers back in the 80s. The Fabulous Freebirds and the the Von Erics. See, I can tell by the look in some of your eyes that I'm speaking your language today. They were the main event because those were the wrestlers that the crowd was interested in the most. There are a lot of things that happen immediately following the rapture. I'm picking up today. This is the sixth week in a summer-long series on end-time prophecy made simple. I can't possibly do a review to kind of bring us all up to speed. I just encourage you again, if you've missed some of these, go to the church webpage, and all of them, the video is posted. You can catch back up. So we've gotten to the place where Christ comes for the church at the event called the rapture, and there are... A lot of things that happen in the rapture, but there are two main events that happen to believers after the rapture. Now, next Sunday, I'm going to talk about what happens to unbelievers after the rapture. But today, I want to talk about what the Scripture has to say, what happens to believers after the rapture of the church. And the first is this. Believers will be judged by Jesus. That's the very first main event that happens after the rapture. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10 says, For we must all stand before Christ to be judged. Now understand, when it says we, the Apostle Paul is writing to believers, to Christians. And so it's only Christians that he's addressing. So all Christians, believers, must stand before Christ to be judged. And we will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil that we have done. Now, This verse is talking about what we often refer to as the judgment seat of Christ. The reason it's called, that's because that's what many of the old literal Bible translations, that's what they put in this verse. But don't miss what I'm about to say. There are a lot of things that are really important this morning, but I think this is the one that that you need to grab onto for comfort and hope more than anything else, and it's simply this. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, When you stand before him to be judged at the judgment seat of Christ, you will not be being judged for your sin. Is anybody else as happy about that as I am? 
I, I look at my life and, and the things, some of the things that I've done and times that I have, have rebelled against God and, and done the things that I know were displeasing to Him. And I'm like, man, I really wouldn't want to have to stand before Jesus and give answer to that. Well, the good news is the judgment seat of Christ, we're not being judged for our sin. Our sin has already been judged at the cross of Calvary. That's why Jesus went to the cross, to pay the penalty, to, to receive the judgment for our sin. So what then actually happens at the judgment seat of Christ or this judgment for believers? The word there in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, the word judgment is the Greek word bima. And the verse that we read here was written by the Apostle Paul to believers in the ancient Greek city of Corinth, hence Corinthians. So we're all familiar with the Olympic Games. We, we know what that's all about. We know that they started in Greece. But there were also another set of games called the Isthmian Games. And they were very similar uh, to the Olympic Games. They just were a little bit of lesser importance. And they happened in the year prior to the Olympics and the year following the Olympics. And these Isthmian Games were held in the city of Corinth. And when an athlete won their event, they would then go stand in front of the judge's seat, and it was called the Bema, the Bema seat. Likewise, we as followers of Jesus, we will stand before the judgment seat, the Bema seat, to be judged not for our sin, but just as the athlete was being judged for his efforts, we're going to be judged for our works, for our efforts. And what that means is, is every Christian, every one of us, our judgment will be different and unique only to us based on how we lived our lives for Jesus Christ. So since there's different, let me just kind of cover the two differences. Some believers will receive reward. I think we have maybe this mistaken notion that every, every Christian is going to be rewarded. That is not the case, and the Bible does not say that at all. When Paul told the Corinthian believers that they were going to appear before a Bema seat to receive what they deserved, they knew exactly what he was talking about. They had been to the Isthmian Games. They had seen the Bema seat. They knew what it was all about. One of the, you know, blessings of my life is I've been able to be in the ancient ruins of Corinth. And I have stood at the, at the feet of the Bema seat. And it's this, this, this big massive thing that you stand below. And the athlete would go and they would receive their reward for their efforts. Whoever came in last place didn't appear at the Bema seat because the Bema seat was for reward, the reward for their efforts. And the Bema, the judgment for the believer, it's not, a, again, not a judgment for our sin. It's a time that believers will receive reward for how they live their life for Jesus. And that takes us to the parable that we read last week in Luke chapter 19. So let's look at that again. Luke chapter 19, verse 11. And the crowd was listening to everything Jesus said. And because he was nearing Jerusalem, he told them a story to correct the impression that the kingdom of God would begin right away. He said this. A nobleman was called away to a distant empire to be crowned king and then return. Before he left, he called together ten of his servants and divided among them ten pounds of silver, saying, Invest this for me. While I'm gone. Now, we talked last week about this, that this is the, the, the nobleman is representing Jesus. He's, he, he went away after the cross of Calvary and his resurrection, but he is going to return. But while he is gone, he has left his servants, believers, followers of Jesus, time, 
talents, money, things to use for his work until he returns. Verse 14, uh, but his people, this is a different group, hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want him to be our king. After he was crowned king, he returned and called in the servants to whom he had given the money. He wanted to find out what their profits were. The first servant reported, Master, I invested your money and made ten times the original amount. Well done, the king exclaimed. You are a good servant. You've been faithful with the little I entrusted to you, so you will be governor over ten cities as your reward. The next servant reported, Master, I invested your money and made five times the original amount. Well done, the king said. You will be governor over five cities. And we'll stop there and we'll pick it up in a minute. So these two servants are those who willingly place themselves under the authority of the nobleman. They've been faithful with what he left them in doing his work. And as a result, they were rewarded for their works, for how they lived while the nobleman was away. I'm not going to spend any more time on this because we covered it all last week and it's easy, to, it's easy for us to understand. But in, nine, in, in the, the verse prior to this, verse 10, it tells us that the work of the nobleman, or the work of Jesus, who the, the nobleman represents, is to seek and to save the lost. And that's the work that we're supposed to be doing while Jesus is away. So if you're a follower of Jesus and you have committed your life to him, you will be rewarded for every good thing you've done that was motivated by your desire to help people find Jesus. But not every Christian is going to receive reward. Some believers will receive reward. The second group, some believers will experience regret. See, there, in, in that 2 Corinthians 5.10... The Bible said that we receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done. But we've talked about that that evil isn't talking about our sins. So what is the evil? It's talking about we're going to be judged for the good works or the evil works that we have done. So what would qualify as evil works? Well, I think really just two two things. First would be no works. I think that would qualify as, as evil works, as no works. In, in uh, Luke chapter 19, we stopped at verse 19. Let's continue. But the third servant, again, the servants were those who willingly placed themselves under authority. They represent followers of Jesus. The third servant brought back only the original amount of money and said, Master, I hid your money and kept it safe. I was afraid because you're a hard man to deal with, taking what isn't yours and harvesting crops you didn't plant. And look at what the nobleman said. You wicked servant. The first two servants were rewarded based upon their faithfulness with the nobleman's business. But this third servant didn't do anything with what the nobleman gave him. And if you notice, I'm I'm going to kind of paraphrase what his excuse was. His excuse was simply this. I didn't do it because I was afraid I would do it wrong. I didn't do it because I didn't think the way I would do it would, would be pleasing to you. There are a lot of Christians in this world who who quite honestly are doing nothing for Jesus, and the excuse that they're using is, well, I'm afraid I'll do it wrong. So, yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't try to lead someone to a saving knowledge of Jesus because I'm afraid I'll say the wrong words. Or I, I don't teach a, a Bible study or lead a Bible study because I'm afraid I'll say the wrong things. Or, or I, I, don't, I don't do this ministry or that ministry because I'm just not sure that I can do it right. I had someone few years back when we very first started the attic our, our our evangelistic youth ministry someone who wasn't a part of our church who was very critical about what we were doing and they were critical about how we were using the attic to help teenagers find jesus 
And it wasn't, this is not a, a quote unique to me. I had heard it many times, and I think many of you have as well. And I told him, I said, look, I, I get that you may not like the way we're helping teenagers find Jesus, but I like the way we're doing it better than I like the way you're not doing it. You see, the bottom line is this. The work of Jesus is to help people find Jesus. And that's what we're to be doing until he returns. So some people have no works because they're afraid they'll do it wrong. Some out of fear, some out of empathy, some out of apathy, some out of carelessness, some out of laziness or even selfishness. So one form of evil works is no works. The other form of evil works are works with the wrong motives. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, you don't have to turn there. But here's what Jesus says. He says, watch out. Now, understand that, that those are, that's, there's some power behind that. When Jesus says, watch out, he's saying, be careful, pay attention. Don't do your good deed. Don't do your works publicly to be admired by others. He wasn't saying don't do them publicly and stopping there. He said, for the motive of being admired by others. He said, because if you do, you will lose the reward from your Father in heaven. You see, there are rewards for our good works, but only if our motive is right. You see, what we do for Jesus is important, but Jesus is showing us here that why we do what we do is most important. It's true of us across the board, but if you'll allow me, I'm going to just use as an example to illustrate church musicians. We've got awesome musicians that love the Lord and love the church. And again, I've shared with you, you know, now for, for I don't even, it's, time has passed so quickly. Whether it's two or three years, I don't even remember since, since Joe left that we've had all volunteers simply serving unpaid every week to lead our church in worship. But musicians have to be careful and mindful to always check their motives. And here's why. Because often when they do a really good song or a powerful song, someone will come up to them and say, man, you guys were awesome today. You guys were great today. And, 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 and shower compliments. And there's also, when, when you're on the platform, there's kind of a, a leadership vibe, right, that kind of goes with that. And if a church musician desires for their musical talent to elevate them in the eyes of others instead of elevating God in the eyes of others... Their motives are wrong. And even if they play or sing in church every Sunday for 50 years, there will be no reward, only regret, because why we do what we do matters most. Um, so we've got these these kids from uh, students, excuse me, students from, from Baptist Bible College, and... and uh, their, their school basically has two worship bands that are out in the summers. And so there's this one and there's another one. And uh, so I follow a lot of them on social media. And, and so this group, they have they've spent time in... They started in Missouri, went to that far southeast Texas, then to San Antonio, and then to Missouri and did a camp in Missouri... That said, it was a good camp, but the the 
there was mold on their dorm walls and kind of really mildewy smelling and just, just not great facilities, you know, but, but still. And then from there, they went to Gulfport, Mississippi, and then to Gulf Shores, Alabama, and then to here, and from here, they'll go back to central Missouri, and then they'll go down to the woodlands. And, and so, you know, they're getting basically hot Texas all summer. And... uh their air conditioner on the van went out. And they're getting to experience some of the joys of ministry while the other worship band has been going to Philadelphia, Ohio, Boston. I saw where they were at Niagara Falls the other day. I know you all saw that as well. And they're getting all of these really cool experiences. And you know what? It would be really easy for these students to begin to kind of feel like, well, man, I wish we were them. See, it's simple for us to get our mind off of why we do what we do. What is the motive? What should be the motive for the things that we do? First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 says this, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. It doesn't matter what you're doing or where you're doing it or the temperature you're doing it or the struggles. God works does greater things in the struggle than he does in the ease and comfort. Our motive should be to always bring glory to God no matter what the circumstances are. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Immediately following the rapture, every follower of Jesus will stand before him for their works to be judged. And 1 Corinthians chapter 3 gives us an idea of kind of how this works. And so in, in verse 11... The Bible says this, For no one can lay any foundation other than the one that we already have, Jesus Christ. So, we're given an illustration or picture of building a house, and the foundation is Jesus. You see, you have to have the foundation to even appear before the judgment seat of Christ, because only believers are there. So, so Jesus is the foundation. But our works are what we do that builds upon the foundation of Jesus. Look at verse 12. Anyone who builds on that foundation may use a variety of materials, gold, silver, jewels, wood, hay, or straw. So when you build a house, you can use a lot of different materials. And it's giving us, again, in this example, uh, six different materials, really in, in two categories. You've got wood, hay, or straw. And then you also got gold, silver, and jewels, precious stones. Verse 13. But on the judgment day, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show if a person's work has any value. If the work survives, that builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. And I'm just going to stop there. So it says that the works of the believer will be revealed by fire, and the fire is going to show what works had real value and which ones did not. And you're wondering, okay, so like, is there going to be this, this, when I stand before Jesus, is there going to be this little house and they're going to like put a fire to it and whatever's left? No. So we're wondering what the fire is. The book of Revelation, chapter 1 and verse 14, describes Jesus and it says that his eyes are as a flaming fire. You see, at our judgment, Jesus will see right through our works. He'll see right through what we did, and he'll see why we did it. And 
and, and here's the thing that we got to know. Man, we can fool the people around us, and we can even fool ourselves. But Jesus always sees right through us. And if our motives were right, which is to bring him glory and help people find Jesus, those works will be gold, silver, and jewels, precious stones, and they will remain. When you burn those, when you put those things through fire, and when the fire's done, they're still gold, silver, and jewels. But when you take the wood, hay, and straw and you put it through the fire, it's consumed and it's not there anymore. You see, if we had no works or works with the wrong motive, Verse 15 says that those things, when they're put through the fire, are consumed and we will experience regret. I want to go back to verse 15. It says, if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. The builder will be saved, but like someone barely escaping through a wall of flames. In, in the parable in Luke chapter 19, when the third servant had no works to show, the nobleman didn't come to him and say, well, bless your heart. I know life was hard. You, you did your best. And he didn't, didn't say, you know, um, everybody's different and, and you just weren't wired that way. So, so don't worry about it. It's not what he said to the servant with no works. He said, you wicked servant. You know, those words weren't chosen randomly in that verse when it says, suffer, loss. Um, there will be people who profess Christ as Savior and then have nothing to show for their life to be rewarded for. Not only does the parable in Luke 19 bear that out, but so does the passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to get to heaven, some, but by just barely escaping hell. Verse 15, the builder will suffer great loss. The builder will be saved, but like someone barely escaping through the wall of flames. So there are going to be some who are going to experience regret because they've lived their life for self or the things that they did in their mind that they were doing for Jesus, their motives were wrong. And they're going to go to heaven because they believed on Jesus for forgiveness of sin. But they're going to stand before him with regret because they did not invest their life in helping people find Jesus. So the first main event that happens to believers after the rapture is that believers will be judged by Jesus. The second is that believers will reign with Jesus. Turn to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. The New Testament repeatedly shows a special relationship between Christ and the church. Specifically, it refers to Christ as the groom and the church as the bride. And if you're a Christian and you're really not sure how God feels about you, you need to always remember the bride and groom comparison. One of my favorite moments to experience as a pastor is when I'm, when I'm officiating at a wedding. And I'm standing here and I'm looking back at those doors and those doors swing open and one of the young ladies in our church appears in that door 
in her beautiful white wedding gown with her dad or, her, or you know some significant person on her arm. And, and every time it happens, I get sometimes I get goosebumps. Sometimes it depending on who it is, you know, I get a little lump in my throat. You see, when you've served at a church like I have, I've served here now for thirty-one years. Sometimes the the bride back there is a little girl that we had just dedicated to Christ just a few years before with her parents. And there's nothing like seeing the beauty and radiance of a bride. And there's also nothing like when, when you see her come in those doors and see the radiance, then shifting your eyes to him. And look at the eyes of the groom as he sees the person that he loves more than any one else in the world and he's about to draw her to himself and make her his own forever Jesus calls us his bride and after the judgment of our works you have the rapture the judgment seat of Christ. And when that's done, Jesus calls us to himself as a groom draws his bride. Revelation chapter 19, verse 5. And from the throne, this is the heavenly throne, came a voice that said, Praise our God, all his servants, all who fear him from the least to the greatest. Then I heard again what sounded like the shout of a vast crowd or roar of mighty ocean waves or the crash of loud thunder. Praise the Lord for the Lord our God. The Almighty reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and let us give honor to him. For the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb and his bride has prepared herself. She has been given the finest of pure white linen to wear. For the fine linen represents the good deeds, the works that have been judged and have remained of God's holy people. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who were invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. What does all that mean? It means that after the rapture and after the judgment for believers, there is a wedding coming when Jesus draws his bride to himself, the one that he loves and looks longingly towards, and he celebrates his love for the church. And from that point on, he establishes a unique relationship the church does with Jesus for all eternity. And after that, after the seven-year tribulation, after the judgment, after all of that, Christ returns to earth to set up his kingdom, and he rules and reigns, and we as his bride rule and reign with him for a thousand years. The question today, the big question is simply this. Are you ready for the main events? Let me make it a little more simple. Believer, Christian, are you ready to stand before Jesus for your works to be judged? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me this morning? If Jesus were to return today and you appeared before the Bema seat tomorrow, would you receive reward? Because you've helped people find Jesus and your motive was for the glory of God? Or would you experience regret and suffer loss?
You know, I, I feel the need to, to, to throw this in before we pray this morning. Some Christian parents are setting their children up to fail when it comes to the judgment seat of Christ. Some Christian parents are putting so much effort into teaching their children to be good at things that do not matter. And they're doing it at the expense of the the most important day of their life as a Christian, their judgment. Are you ready to stand before Jesus to be judged for your works? Have you set your children up to fail because you've taught them that extracurricular activities are more important than their relationship with Jesus Christ? Look, you can't change how you've lived in the past, but what you do from today on, that's in your hands. You can make the rest of your life count and make sure that Jesus rewards you as a faithful servant instead of suffering loss as a wicked servant. Make each day count because we don't know how many more days we have. That's what living fully is all about. This morning, church, I just want to challenge you to that one thing. Again, this message is strictly for believers. Are you ready to appear before the judgment seat of Christ? If it happened today, would you experience reward or would you experience regret? After the day of accepting Christ as our Savior, it is the most important day of all eternity. Make each day count. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the challenge that it gives us today. For the the rebuke that, that many of us we have to deal with because many times we've either done nothing or we've done right things but with the wrong motives. Father, I pray that you would forgive me for every time that I failed in that. God, help me. for everything that I do to do it for the glory of God. And I pray that that would be the prayer of every Christian here today. God, help us to realize that there's a day coming that we will stand face to face with you. And you will ask us to give account of what we've done for you. God, challenge us to be faithful servants and ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.